It's a joy to be here. It's been a few years since I've been here, and I, this is the first time in this place, so known uh, Raz and Zell for a long time, and now Zach and Amanda, what an amazing uh, couple, and what a joy. Uh, listen, I, I, I tell everybody, you know, when I came here, just from the couples conference to here, I feel like we're home. It's like just, you know, you pick up, sit down with people, talk with them. I do that at our church, though. I'll see a strange, uh, you know, people I haven't seen before sitting at one of the tables, and I'll just sit down and say, oh, sorry I'm late, so what did I miss? You know, just kind of pick up a conversation with somebody, like breaking the ice, and it's, it's always fun. Everybody has a story, and I hope that, um, you know, some of my story will encourage you in the message this morning, and maybe to inspire you to be about, you know, what God has for you, and realizing your significance in the kingdom, your place, and how you can be an encouragement in a and a huge blessing to many around. And who knows, a simple act of kindness. I mean, that's essentially my testimony. It was a simple act of kindness that got my heart. I, um, I grew up in the church, uh, you know, mainly because when my mom died when I was four, my dad had left when I was three, so my grandmother at the age of 60 took an early retirement I think she got a whopping $17 a month from Wool, Woolworth or whatever it was, she, and then a little Social Security, and took us three ki- four kids in, my three older sisters and I. And, uh, but the thing that was unique is that she brought us to church. Up to that point, uh, my mom was not a Christian. I found out later, just before she died, she did pray to receive the Lord, so I anticipate seeing her in heaven. But um, my grandmother took us to church, and uh, you know, I loved it. I learned the Bible. I memorized so much. I, I loved going to church. But when I hit uh, 13, I didn't have a dad. I didn't have a model. And uh, I, I just began to think, I don't really want to go to church anymore. And so I made excuses. And I was able to convince my grandmother, little bit by little, I just, I left off. And uh, what, a, what a disastrous five years that was. I'd love to claim back, but God used that even in my rebellion, my brother-in-law, who really helped me, he was kind of a male mentor in my life, and I actually told him the other few years ago how much he meant to me, and I thanked him for that. Um, I said, you know, getting me smoking marijuana at 13 didn't help me, though, but in other ways, I was very thankful that I had a male leadership, and, uh, but that was my road. I started uh, getting off the wrong track, but thankfully... Uh, I had a big brother of America, and he kind of inspired me to really get into sports. I got, my first love was basketball, and then eventually became uh, wrestling when I didn't grow tall enough to play basketball anymore. Uh, Then uh, wrestling became my sport, and I excelled at it. And of course, I had to stay off drugs, and I had to stay off all that stuff during season. But that became my God then. That became my goal. Everything was about winning. And uh, I did achieve, you know, the, you know, the, you know, ranked number one in the state of Michigan at the time, and but ended up with a disappointing loss in the state tournament. Ended up uh, taking fourth, blow to my ego. I still had a full scholarship at Michigan if I wanted to go, or Michigan State, you know. And I ended up going to Michigan State uh, because my friends were going. You know, I didn't have good counsel, right? I would have had a much better engineering department in Michigan. But I go to Michigan State, get on the wrestling team, and I'm thinking now, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer the world. But um, what had happened that summer before, uh, I went camping with some of my friends, and I had my dog Gretchen with me, and you know, a little beautiful little German Shepherd, and, 
And so we were out walking in the woods and we got lost. And my dumb dog, come on, you know, you're a dog. You should figure out how to get back. But we were lost and I got afraid. I mean, I really got afraid. We were lost. I'm walking for hours. It's getting dark. And I remember I hadn't prayed in a long time, but I prayed, God, if you get me out of this, I'm going to come back to you. And so I, I turned uh, down, I just started walking down a trail, my worthless dog following me, and all of a sudden I'm in camp, and it was like, wow. And I promptly forgot about my vow and went about doing my life and living my life, but God did not forget. And uh, so my first term in college uh, turned out to be a disaster, and God sometimes ordains disasters for our lives in a good way to kind of arrest our attention. If you keep going down that road, it's not gonna end well, so I'm gonna make it painful now so you don't get to the end of the road and I can arrest that development. And so um, depression set in. I was you know, the big guy on campus in high school. Now I'm just one of 40,000 students and nobody and uh, getting beat up in the wrestling team and I'm, I'm just beside myself, um, very depressed, almost suicidal. I was involved in all kinds of stuff in in high school and almost even occultic things. But that, that term was very, very painful. And I'll never forget going to wrestling practice one day. And after getting uh, beat up in the, in the room, you know, all the upperclassmen are, you know, practicing on you. And uh, I, I was doing good, but it was hard. And I come into the locker room and this other guy, the same freshman as me, he seemed to be so happy. And I'm like, I don't know where that's coming from. So I said, why are you so happy all the time? And he said, you really want to know? I said, yeah. And he goes, I'm a follower of Jesus. You should have seen me put on the poker face like, I got to be cool, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know about that and stuff. But inside, I'm going, no, it can't be that. But when my way home from wrestling practice, that was it. That was when I finally surrendered and said, Lord, here am I. If you can do in me what, you, what I see in him, I want that. In fact, the Bible even gives us a scripture for that. It says, you know, always be ready to give a defense asked of you for the reason of the hope that's in you. To be ready to give a defense for that. And a lot of times we think of this great big apologetic training when really all it is is somebody sees hope in you and they want to know where it's coming from. Where is it coming from? And that's what I asked. Where's that coming from? He told me. He gave me the reason. It was Jesus. And that's all I needed. All right, I want that. And that began my journey back in a wintry night of 1976 at Michigan State University, first term. And, uh, but I didn't know what happened to me at first. All I knew is when I come into my room at dormitory, the wildest thing happened. I, I had this mirror to the right, and every time I'd come in, I'd see myself to the right. And I, I, I got to such a self-loathing that I just hated my image. I hated what my life had become. I hated the depression. And I looked, and instead of hatred, I, I saw, it was weird. It was like acceptance. It was like I, I saw a person. I saw somebody there that was worth something. It was weird. And I didn't really put anything to it until I eventually got a knock on my door from somebody that found out I prayed to receive the Lord and, and uh, wanted to get me involved in a campus group. And I couldn't say yes fast enough got plugged in, but man, I was raw. I was rough. It was a, let me put it this way. I loved God for how he made me feel just like a baby loves the milk of the mother, you know, how that milk, and then you deprive that baby of milk and that baby will turn on you moms, you know, you know what that is. But so I loved him for how he made me feel. And that first year was amazing. 
But then the Lord began to wean me, just like a child needs to be weaned, from the milk so that the child is just content with the mother himself or it's herself. And so I began to get, go through these weaning things and I didn't feel the Lord and I was really getting upset and like a little baby crying, you know, maybe God's not here. And we all go through that phase of learning how to get, get not, not be so content with how the Lord makes you feel, but to see what he's doing in you and to be content with that. And eventually you get to a maturity where you're just content to be with him. And that's ultimately the goal, to just be content to be with him. So that was my journey. It started, and after a, a couple of years of going from chemical engineering to figuring out, Lord, I, I, don't, I just want to serve you. I want to tell everybody about the Lord. I was involved in evangelizing and ended up going on a trip to my, the last term of my, June, my sophomore year. I went to England to study for that semester. And I went with my friend who knocked on my door, and uh, I thought, man, that'll be so cool. But it became a desert spiritually. And uh, I was uh, alone most of the time. All the other students wanted to party. And I just wanted, I, I, Lord, what do you want me to do? So I'd hitchhike through the, in the weekends. I'd, I'd go out in the mountains. I'd be praying, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Do I go back to college? Do I finish? I got a full scholarship. I don't want to waste that. But I feel this call. And my sister had been involved in California. They moved to California. She got involved with this new church called Calvary Chapel. And I thought, Calvary Chapel? I knew nothing about it. But somehow it just kept ringing in my ears. And I said, praying, Lord, do you want me to go out and get trained in ministry there? And I was out on the mountaintop my last week there in, in England. And I'm praying, God, I need to know. And I remember getting a clear picture of what he wanted me to do. I was so clear to leave the scholarship, leave that plan, go out and get trained in ministry. Now, all my relatives thought I was crazy. You know, you've got a full scholarship. You've got this opportunity. But some reason, I just, I, I knew this was right. So I went out and um, I later found out, because I'd forgotten my original vision. My friend who knocked on my door is now on our staff with his wife and uh, he's like a prayer warrior, and he reminded me, he says, you don't remember, do you? When you came back from the mountain, and the professor, this Jewish professor said, so what are you going to do the rest of your season, you know, the summer? And I, I raised my hand, I said, well, I'm not going back to school. I, I'm going out to Southern California, I'm going to get trained in ministry, I'm going to start a church that's going to be bigger than John Stott's in England, and I'm going to start a radio station, and I'm, and I'm all this bravado stuff, and my friend was like, oh, God, shut him up. Oh, this Jewish professor thinks he's crazy. Oh, my gosh, these people think he's nuts. Please shut up, Lloyd, shut up, you know. And uh, I, I'd forgotten that uh, because my four or five years out in California, the Lord beat it out of me, let me put it that way. Any ambition I might have had personally, I learned true ministry with Raul Reese, and it was, it was one of those things where it wasn't about me and Eventually, the Lord gave us a call to go out to New Jersey. Um, I had met my beautiful wife, uh, who's sitting right back there with the hair. You can't miss her. And that's how I find her in the grocery stores. You know, where'd she go? Oh, there's her hair. But uh, we met, and uh, that was a miracle, too. And we had two little, you know, kids. And we, in tow, went out to New Jersey in 1984. So been there 38 years. 
started a little Bible study, it grew, and again, I totally forgot about the vision, but one by one, my friend kept calling me, how many people are in your church? I go, why do you wanna know? I'm not gonna tell you how many people are in your church. I don't care how many people are in the church. I don't care about that. You know, I just, if there's 10 people the Lord gives me to minister to, I'm gonna minister to them. But he kept bugging me. So I tell him, you know, okay, there's this many, this many, and he, he knew the vision that he remembered that I'd said, and he says, oh my gosh, it came true. The, there's, you know, the church has grown. And then, uh, then, he, then we got a radio station, and then he was like really freaking out. He goes, that, that was true too. And eventually, you know, he t- told me this vision, and I'm thinking, wow, God did what he said he was gonna do, even though he had to kind of knock me out. So I didn't have to think of anything. It was, it was not about me, it was about him. So that was a, a little bit of the story. So coming out to New Jersey, having a passion just to pour into people, and uh, it's, it's been... Well, let me put it this way. This nice California kid going to New Jersey, that was culture shock. Any people from New Jersey? All right. What are you looking at? I know you're not looking at me, you know. Forget about it. I know that's more New York, but a lot of them moved to New Jersey. And any New Yorkers here? All right, come on. All right. New York's in the house. Well, listen, I, 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 I was this innocent, you know, on fire, you know, guy for the Lord. But, man, it was like a culture shock. It's like, you boys look like some nice boys. We'll take care of you. There's no problem looking for buildings. And my, one of my favorite ones was, you know, this guy comes up after service. Now, we were looking for land. We were going to go before the township for this one piece of property. And I mentioned that. And a guy comes up afterwards and says, uh, listen, uh, Lloyd, uh, my, I don't come here, but my wife, she thinks you're beautiful. And um, <laughs> when you go before the township, give me a call. We'll bust a few horns. We'll get you in there, no problem. So I'm thinking to myself, am I going to be delivering money in paper bags somewhere? You know, I, I have this number. I'm afraid to call it. I don't want to trust in the arm of the flesh. So I threw the number away. Uh, but it was years later when I was in, I think it was in Miami. I don't know if it was in your marriage conference or somebody else, but I had mentioned this story and a guy comes up to me and said, that's really funny. You sounded just like my father. And he goes, what was your father's name? And he, that was him. And he says, yeah, my mom went to your church. My dad didn't. I said, well, tell me, would I have been delivering money in paper bags, you know? And he goes, no, no, he, he would have helped. He was an honest businessman. And I'm like, oh, man, we could have got that building. But the Lord knew if we'd gotten that building, it would have been too small for what he was doing. And, but, you know, um, as time went on, the Lord just opened up some amazing doors of ministry, radio and stuff. But our big passion uh, of late has been, and I mentioned that, about the uh, mobile medical unit. I felt a burden in our pro-life. I've always been pro-life, but I didn't really care too much for how the pro-life activity was. A lot of guilt and shaming for women who've had abortions, the signs out in the front of the clinics. And, and, um, you know, I mentioned in this uh, marriage weekend that if I ever held up a sign uh, in front of abortion clinic, it would be, you would be a great mom. Because the reality is they've been lied to. They've been told in the Planned Parenthood says, you can't do this. Your life is over. You're not ready for this. You can't. Talk about empowering women, right? They tell you what you can't do. And, uh, but you know what? Uh, a relative that I shared that with, that you'd be a great mom when she was pregnant and thinking of an abortion, she decided to keep that child. And uh, now she's got a grandchild from that child. And the wild thing is, she'd ask me, well, why do, you, why do you say I'd be a great mom? And I'd say, because you know how hard it is. You know how difficult it is. And you know the sacrifice you're making. And you would, you would not just go at it half-heartedly. So that's why you're thinking of not having a child, because you, you know what it would cost you. But you would do it. And that child would really benefit from it. And she had that child. 
And um, so we, we ended up hearing about this ministry called Save the Storks, and they developed these mobile units, and they only worked with pregnancy centers, but we said, why not us? I mean, we got a huge ministry of people that were, you know, well, well, you need an ultrasound tech, you need a doctor that's put his license on, you need, it's expensive, it's this and that. But we began to just pray, and our board was rightful at the board. They basically said, yeah, well, we're not going to do anything until we get 75% of the money raised, we have this, that, this, that. And I said, okay, so let's pray. So we prayed, and God raised up a medical director, raised up a doctor to put his license, raised up, instead of one ultrasound tech, we got four ultrasound techs. So we ended up getting this. They, we talked, saved the storks into it. They didn't want to work with a church. They didn't think we could do it. But now, just to flash forward, we got the unit. We deployed it right in the middle of COVID. Uh, it's crazy. 2020, I think in March, right in the, the center of stuff, or in May, I think we started. And it was beyond words. Hey, Planned Parenthood is open and all these other places are open. I don't care what they say. We're going to do this. So we went out right during all the riots and everything. So we didn't know what to expect, but God opened a door. And from then until now, 430 babies have been rescued. This is how it works. Yeah. They will park that vehicle. Uh, It's a Mercedes Sprinter van, really decked out, beautiful medical facility inside. Uh, we'll park it right across the street from a Planned Parenthood, and then we'll have the intake over there. And I was there when one young Guatemalan, Guatemalan couple came on board, and they came off smiling, so happy to keep their baby, to see what was there. And uh, this is what it is. You know, you think we're guilting women into this, but in reality, the women send their pictures of their babies afterwards, thanking us profusely for being there. And, uh, and I held a little three-day-old baby in my hands uh, a couple Sundays ago, And I got to tell you, it was something powerful, a little baby that was rescued from this. And to see that little baby, to see that hope and know that this is a soul. And 430, that's a school of kids. That's a generation. What they can do, who knows? I mean, when God answered the heart's cry of Israel in their desperate plea, in their slavery in Egypt, God sent them a baby, a little baby. And that baby rescued was Moses. And it would be 80 years later until all of that would be fulfilled. But God has a plan and a purpose for every soul. So this really struck us. And, and uh, so it took seven months for our board to even okay this thing. And once we got going, uh, even Save the Storks now said, uh, your unit is being used more than any other unit in the nation. We want to work with churches now. So we're getting our second unit in January. But now I, I told our group, I said, we're not getting a third or a fourth or a fifth. Because right now, instead of adding, I'd love to multiply. So we started a little conference, and now there's churches starting to do the same thing. They're praying about it. They're raising the resource. They're getting people trained. And, and I want to tell you something. There's nothing like it. Because it's a it, the wide open field of evangelism is because the, the con, what I'd call the consciousness of guilt in America, both men and women, Many pastors don't even like to talk about abortion in the pulpit because they know in their congregation there's a good percentage of women that have had abortions in their past. There's some here too, which is why you're here. Because you know that, that decision that was wrong and you owned that. The only solace you got was the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ to wash that sin away, free you up so that you could be restored and that you could help others not go down that road. I've had men in my office bawling their eyes out for the decision they made 
Because most people don't realize that we look at the women for making that decision. You know, a large part of that decision is 80% of women who have an abortion feel they had no choice. And largely because the man is not behind them. Man finds out, oh, you're pregnant? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? And they, they become complicit in this. So this collective guilt in America, to me, is a white field that Jesus said for harvest. Because... It's like the story of Joseph. Most people think Joseph is a rag-to-riches story. Oh, this poor guy, he's sold by his brothers, and he's in pain, he's in slavery, you know, now he's in prison. And uh, then he gets raised up because he trusts God, and wow, you know, roll the credits, it's done. But the truth is, that's just the beginning of the story. The real story of Joseph is not a rag-to-riches. It's a rescue operation. He needed to rescue his brothers who were trapped in their dirty little secret that they held for many years of selling their brother. They were not prepared to lead the nation. God needed to prepare them, so he used Joseph to capture their heart. Judah, who's going to lead the nation, felt so guilty, he couldn't even look his dad in the face, moved to the land of Canaanites, married a Canaanite woman, had children through this Canaanite woman who, you know, all died because they were worthless guys, and the only one left was Tamar, one of the widows, and she wanted the next, the third son, and Judah didn't want to give his third son to this woman because you know, she's already uh, been, been a part of the deaths of the first two. So he was like holding out, and of course the whole thing, he, he ends up being unfaithful to his wife with her, has a child, it's a mess. Look, one thing you learn about the Bible, it's very honest about the messes in people's lives. And so Joseph, he's now raised up. The famine comes. God brings all the, the, all the patriarchs, all the sons of Jacob there. And eventually Joseph reveals himself. And they, he saves the whole nation, both physically and spiritually. They come, to, they come to grips. They're finally honest with why they're in trouble. They said it's because of what we did to Joseph. And you know, listen, are you holding anything in your own heart? Any guilt, any, any sin that you're guilty about and you keep, you feel like you got to beat yourself. I mean, young people especially, they have no place to go with their guilt. They cut themselves, they harm themselves, they don't know how to deal with the shame and the guilt. And man, the Bible, God gives us his grace through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. You shouldn't be carrying around this guilt. Come freely. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And this is the message that we have to the world. But we've become kind of quiet as a church. This culture's whirling around us. It seems bigger than anything. What the Bible says, the nations are a drop in the bucket. They don't even weigh as dust on the scales. All these rich, powerful elite. Do you know all the world governments, you know, from the Assyrian Empire to the Egyptian Empire to the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire to the Grecian Empire to the Roman Empire. What do we do? We visit their ruins. They don't exist anymore. That's the shelf life of sin. And it's exactly where our nation is going. We've been the most powerful nation in the world and now we're a byword. We're a laughingstock to the world. And we're on decline. And these rich, powerful people, now the end times world government will be the most powerful. But you read the fine print? Seven years is the extent of their kingdom. When the Antichrist takes over, seven years later, 
He's toast. So what do we put our trust in? This whole world looks so powerful, so intimidating. I mean, the education, look, you you can see the Marxists march through the institutions in our own nation. They've taken over education, they've taken over media, they've taken over corporations. It's, It's all through our nation. We shouldn't be surprised. This is the way the world is going. But I believe as Christians, we have a great, powerful answer to all of these things. So that was my introduction to jump into the scriptures. I'm sorry about that. It's my wife's fault. She actually comes up. I don't know if you saw her come up. She says, honey, you, there's a lot of young people here. You should share a little of your testimony. So, so uh, I, I had to share because, you know, a happy wife is a happy life. We learned that, I think, in the conference. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Once you start on the glorious path of salvation, beginning at Calvary, many amazing things happen. However, you're, you still have a lot of old data. You become born again. You believe you're, you're now a saint, according to the Bible, that you're set apart. You're a holy one because he is holy. He's made you holy by his virtue But you still live in this old body and you're waiting for that redemption. One day you're going to get your new body. In the meantime, we're here on this planet Earth for a purpose. And we've inherited our salvation. And why doesn't the Lord just whisk us off to heaven? Because he uses people. He's commissioned us to bring the gospel, to reach others to influence others, my whole life is whatever I can do to influence people to just take another look at Jesus. Because that was my story. I grew up in the church, so I didn't think the answer was there. I'm looking at all these other philosophies. But that one guy influenced me to take another look at Jesus in any way you can while you're here. Now, the truth is that in order to go from this salvation that we have in Christ to the next, if that's the most important thing, right? It is. Your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written there. You are saved. When you breathe your last, you're going to be in heaven forever. That is certainly the most important thing. If that's the most important thing, what's the next most important thing? To help others find their way, to influence others, to to just be a part of their story. Now, we're not all going to be all of the part. I always see myself as just one part of the journey that someone might have in their life. In fact, um, when I started encouraging our church to, when they go to the restaurants, just ask uh, the waiter when they're delivering the food or waitress to say, hey, you know, we have this tradition that we pray for our food. Is there anything we can pray for you about? And uh, we, that starts an amazing conversation sometimes. Sometimes it's just like, well, you can pray for this. I'm in school. I need this. And so we go, sure. Now, we don't know if we're just a part of that. But one thing I've heard is there's people coming to our church saying, I had five people in the last three months. I'm over a waitress over here. And three, four, five times people would ask me. And eventually I found out they're from this church, so I had to come. And so God uses it powerfully. Just those little things, but not one of us was the reason, but collectively, you never know. You're just leaving a little fragrance of Christ. Sometimes it's a simple thing. I'll I'll get in an elevator, a crowded elevator, and instead of turning around, uh, I just stand there facing everybody. When the doors close, there's a three or four very awkward seconds. (laughs) 
because, uh, you know, this, who's this weird guy who's looking at us and not turning around? And I'll just wait till it's awkward. I feel that for a few seconds, and I'll say, I suppose you wonder why I gathered you here. And they have that same reaction. And I'll say, I'm just messing with you. Where are you guys from? Where are you from? Where are you? I just broke the ice. Now I'm finding out where they're from, and I've, I've got 30 seconds in an elevator, so I'm not going to give the gospel, but I'm going to see them in the hotel. Hey, you're from Minnesota, aren't you? You know, and I'll begin to, so tell me about Minnesota. And you just show an interest in people. And the next thing you know, they're asking you why you're there. Well, I'm here at a Christian conference and, and uh, kind of a little fishing, a little, little nibble out there. If I get a nibble, oh, what church is it? And then you go to the next step. And sometimes I found I'm just a part. They're like, they're like they, they don't want to talk anymore. And you know what I do? I respect that. I don't push it because I know I'm just a part of the journey. In fact, when I was at that point of believing in Jesus, I remember vividly, what would it mean to become a Christian now? And my mind went to all of the people that left a good testimony from my fifth grade teacher who I gave her a dirty signal, you know, just being a brat. And she came over very sweetly and kindly and said, I know what that means, Lloyd. And I felt so bad for it. I wanted... I found out she was a Christian, and I always admired her, and I always wanted to be the best student in her class just because she was so kind to me. And then it was the guy, of course, in the wrestling room, but there was another time I was, rest, I was hitchhiking to a wrestling meet from Jackson to, to Detroit, and this van picked me up. I remember it was a white van. It was a family in the van, and they started telling me about Jesus, and I'm like, I was not interested, and I let them know. I was, yeah, well, yeah, that's good. I changed the subject, and you know what they did? They respected me. They started asking me about my wrestling and this and that. And I remember getting off and I'm thinking, wow, what a nice people. Now, here's the thing. When you tell somebody about Jesus, when you bring up the subject, they're, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, if I believe what you're saying, I'm going to be like you. Do I want that? Now, that's a sobering thought, which is why we have all the letters of the New Testament. And Corinth especially. Corinth is a lot like American culture. Wrapped up in paganism, you know, wrap a bow around it, wrap it up. It's this is where we are. It's a pagan culture we live in right now, which is why they can't define men or women or boys or girls or gender. And there's all sorts of confusion because we've gotten away from a biblical framework completely. We've been totally indoctrinated. Young people, and, and listen, it's a, it's a subtle thing how it happens, but it's very, very effective. But just like Corinth, God brought some people there that began to inspire people to take another look at what this Jesus was all about. And that, that's a powerful thing. So in the back of your mind, you're, at, you're thinking, and I thought of all those people, and I thought, yeah, I could see myself as a Christian. And that's what moved me. Every little bit counts. Every little fragrance of Christ you leave. You don't have to seal the deal with everybody. Some evangelists tell you, you know, you've got to keep forcing it until you get them to pray. Please don't. Leave, leave the respect because when Jesus said to that rich young ruler, remember, the opportunity to follow him, go sell all you have and follow me. People only hear the, oh, sell all? Oh, now that was not true for everybody, but this rich man, that was his trouble. He needed to deal with that. But boy, I gotta tell you what. Boy, did he miss out on the deal. He could have been one of the disciples for all eternity. What did he hold on to? A few trinkets of this world? What a dumb decision. But, 
But listen, Jesus didn't chase him down the road saying, no, no, please let me explain more. Let me, come on, I got to tell you more. No, he let him go. And sometimes you just, you let people, you, you have to, they have to make their decision. They have to make their decision. But you know, you can be that fragrance of Christ that they'll think, wow, even though that guy tried to tell me about Jesus and I rebuffed him, he was very respectful and very nice. Hmm. File that in the back of their mind. Next time somebody says something, next time trouble they go through, they're going to think, you know what? I could see myself becoming a Christian. Christians are the number one reason why people become Christians. But be careful. They're also the number one reason why people don't many times. The bad examples, the bad witness. So that's why we have the New Testament. That's why we have the epistles. Paul's writing to a group of people, and he says, Paul the apostle, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, he's the apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Acacia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Typical greeting in a Greek letter. And then he goes on and basically says, blessed be, and you know what, here's one problem, I'm in the wrong book. I'm in 2 Corinthians, that really will throw me off. Very similar opening, so it threw me for a second. Wow. Who did you get to speak here? Zach? So Paul called to be the apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So very similar opening. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So this is a, an identifier of who you are. You are the church at Miami in Christ. Your destination, or your, your position is in Christ. You're at Miami. And this is who we are set apart as we have believed. We've called in the name of Jesus, which is a, synonymous with believing in his name. You know, the name of Jesus because he will save us from our sins, because he considered us valuable enough to die for us, and there is no way we can save ourselves. That's the three things we learned about the name of Jesus. That's why Joseph was told, don't be afraid to take Mary. You're going to have the son conceived of the spirit. His name will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That tells us sin is the problem. It tells us you are worth more than you realize. How do you know what anything is worth? By what somebody's willing to pay for it. What, does, what did somebody pay for your soul? He laid it all on the cross. But it also tells us that we can't save ourselves because if he could, he would not have had to come. And the number one religion in the world, let me tell you, and this is why it's hard to speak to people about their need for salvation because the number one religion in the world is salvation... That, by works. That is, I, if I'm basically a good person, I'll make it in. No, there's only one name given among men under heaven by which we will be saved, and that is the name Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. He paid it all. And when you call upon his name, you are now set apart for his purpose. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is an important picture because this picture of grace uh, is, well, this opening greeting just tells it all. The picture of grace. What does this imply? 
It implies that if you want to have the peace with God, you're going to need grace from God. Grace is his gift rather than your earning it. But let me say, it's so easy to trip up and fall back into this works-based thing where I, God will, God's not happy with me right now because of what I did last night. And I'm in church because I'm, and I don't know if he's going to look at me, and I didn't even know if the church was going to fall down when I entered it because I, I don't deserve. And, and you, you get into this pagan, because it's all paganism. Pagan, pagan thought is that you need to pay for your sin. You need to go to church and do penance. You need to do something to pay for your sin. That is not a biblical concept. That is a pagan concept. That's why the pagans would cut themselves, and that's why they'd offer those elaborate sacrifices. They'd offer up their own babies you know, to please the gods. But we don't need our sacrifice. We trust in his sacrifice. By his grace, that's how we have peace with a perfect God. I mean, think about it. How, if you think you can save yourself, I just would ask somebody, well, how good would you have to be to stand before a perfect God? Would you be happy with 99%? If you were 99% good, would you, would you think that's pretty good? Well, we wouldn't accept 99% in the business world. We wouldn't, I mean, imagine how many airline takeoffs and landings would end a disaster if we accepted 99% perfection. How many babies would be given to the wrong parents every day? How many pieces of mail would be misdelivered every, this was a FedEx campaign years ago. They, they, they don't accept 99%. We don't, we can't. You can't accept it from your bank, can you? Hey, 99% of the time, we're honest with you. Or, or even more personal, uh, your spouse says, honey, you'd be happy to know that 99% of the time when I'm on those business trips, I'm faithful to you. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't accept that, right? So why do you think God would accept your best, your 99%? He's perfect. He's holy. He can't. He won't. So he is the one that provided the full payment to bring you back into fellowship with him. And that's why in verse 4 through 9, which is really the main part of the text that I want to develop, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. This, this is an amazing picture. He's writing to them. And essentially describes this grace and peace that they have. And look, if we could see ourselves from God's perspective now, the wonderful benefits that he's unfolding here. It's like a person, let's say they were separated from their parents growing up in poverty. And, and then they were restored to their true parents who were wealthy millionaires. Um, they probably wouldn't comprehend the fullness of it at first until they started maturing. And that's kind of how we are as Christians. We really don't know who we are. But I'll tell you who does know who you are. The enemy of your souls knows exactly who you are. Could be one of the reasons he rebelled against the Most High because God chose to make out of dust these little balls of clay, souls that would be elevated above the angels one day judge the angels. Your future, your destiny, your purpose in Christ is beyond imagination. 
But while we're still breathing oxygen here, fiddling around with the trinkets of this world, we don't see clearly who we really are. But the enemy of your soul sees you, so he wants to deface you. Have you ever thought about that? Every waking moment, and he doesn't sleep, he's plotting a way to mess with you, to trip you, to suck you into sin. Because it's kind of like the doctrine of Balaam. When Balaam was hired by the king of Molech, or the king of Moab, to curse the children of Israel. He strutted in with his big pagan power and authority, and he does his little enchantments. And, but the real God tells him, you ain't cursing them. You ain't cursing them. You can't curse them. So three times he tries, and he fails to get his honorarium, and he's all bummed out. I could have made you a rich man, the king says to Balaam. So Balaam's thinking, man, I can't stop these people. You can't stop these people. But then he goes, aha, though you can't stop these people, they can stop themselves. So here's what you do. Whisper, whisper, whisper. He tells him, send your little beautiful girls down there and uh, the ladies to dance provocatively and uh, bring the men into a sexual temptation. And so then God himself will discipline his people. And it worked. The men fell right into the sexual lust. They started sleeping with these Moabite women, and the curse came upon them. And this is the strategy. See, you are untouchable as a child of God. You really are. You don't even know your own authority. You don't know who you are. Satan knows who you are, so he, and he knows he can't touch you directly, but he can tempt you to sin against God. Now, here's the good news. Even if he tempts you to sin against God, that can't take away who you are. Your salvation in Christ, I believe, is pretty solid, but here's the problem. The very most important thing after your salvation is now impossible to impact anybody else. You now are a person without a purpose. And that purposelessness will drive you crazy. Giving and fulfilling all of your lusts and cravings will not satisfy your eternal soul. And he knows it. And plus, he also has effectively sterilized you from ever having an impact on somebody else. And if you sit there and you think to yourself, well, I'm not hurting anybody by what I'm doing. You don't even know who you are. You have no idea the civilizations that are destroyed because of your decision. There is a, in a baby, there is an entire civilization waiting to unfold. That, that, this is powerful. When God answered, he sent a baby, Moses, he sent a baby in Bethlehem. And Herod and Pharaoh both understood the they understood the significance of a baby that grows up and could challenge their power, so they destroy. Why do you think abortion is, we're so hell-bent in this nation under the guise of rights? We're hell-bent to destroy life, potential, that powerful potential that God, we don't know. And we can blame God for all the evil in the world. Look, look at all the evil. They'll philosophize in the universities. All the evil in the world. What kind of a God would allow all this? Well, listen, Mr. Professor, how do you know that God didn't send the answer to cancer, the answer to all these other problems, the answer to world 
you know, peace. He answered all these issues in our world, but they never made it out of the womb. My point is this. You are more valuable than you realize. The potential in you, which is why the enemy wants to derail you, which is why Paul writes, you should be really encouraged, actually, to know because a lot of people talk about the early church. Oh, we got to get back to the early church. The early church is so cool, and we're so, we're so far from the early church. Well, listen, the early church, this church, Corinth, had Paul as a pastor for two years. He had all of, they had all of the work of the Spirit, all the gifts of the Spirit. But Paul has to write them about five big issues in their life that, that's totally messing them up. So it should encourage you that even this church needed to be corrected. We all need correction. We all do. There are times I need that insight, you know, the Holy Spirit convicting me about something or my wife telling me something I've forgotten or, you know, or some good friend that's willing to speak the truth in my life because they love me and God loves me. So I don't want to be in a place where as he writes, he says that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. I mean, they, they really prided themselves in Corinth about utterances and uh, speeches and the oratory. And, you know, in our culture, we see the same thing. All the clever speeches. And, I mean, you could spend hours on TikTok or YouTube or Instagram and, and all the clever things out there and the oratory and very brilliant minds. But most of them have never been cross-examined. Professors I listened to, they sounded like, wow, they knew their stuff. But as soon as you learn a few more things to question them, they fall. I had a humanities professor at Michigan State. I'm a baby Christian. I know very little, but I'm learning the Bible. And I start asking him questions. He started going through his humanities version of Paul the Apostle and the Bible. And, and I'm like, well, that's not right. I'd raise my hand. I raised my hand. Instead of him being annoyed, he was one of the few professors that actually appreciated the challenge. I inspired some other Christians to, you know, question, but I ended up playing racquetball with this guy regularly, and it just, it was like wild how God opened a door. Other professors want to hang me out to dry. I got publicly ridiculed by one professor and mocked me, and uh, I had some other crazy professors, but that's another story. Point is, everyone sounds intelligent and right until they're cross-examined. And that's why when you know the Bible, you know the truth. You can test everything. And so all their utterances and knowledge that he wanted to enrich them in the truth of God would far surpass the Gnostic knowledge, the fake news, the fake knowledge, all of the ways that people are manipulated. And he wants to equip them so that they have the testimony of Christ confirmed in them. That is what Christ has done for them. So that you come short in no gift, verse 7, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, and God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I don't know, um, I don't know what time I'm supposed to end, so you better uh, give me a signal here. Is there a signal there? Is it 12.30? Let's see, what time did we start? I'm not sure. I think probably I'm already supposed to be done. <laughs> so here's where I want to finish with this. We live in a very challenging era. Not unlike the pagan era of Corinth, except 
there's a different way that people were intimidated. They were intimidated by the Greek philosophers then. They were intimidated by these very tedious speeches of the knowledgeable ones. They were intimidated by the uh, pagan worship and uh, the prostitutes. I mean, literally, it was the, the sexual freedom in Corinth was off the charts. But now we're intimidated with a little bit more challenging things. With big tech, with AI technology, um, people don't realize that, and, and a lot of, you'll hear people say, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. Well, now they can't say that because a lot of this stuff is coming to pass, just as was predicted. The New World Order, the Great Reset, the whole stuff, it's, it's look, this social engineering, everything that's happening is carefully calculated. Again, this powerful, eventual world government, if this is indeed it, because, you know, listen, we could actually have a reset button. In the 80s, we thought, man, this is it. We thought the Lord's coming back. You know, Russia's ready to attack, and the Cold War is crazy. And the Lord gave us a reprieve. And then it got a little more crazy at 9-11. Everybody thought, is this it? Is this Babylon? The Babylon, everything's in place. And then it kind of died for a while. It was like a birth pang. It came, and then it sat down, and another one came, even worse, and another one came. And this could be another like, uh, you know, getting close and then dies down. In fact, almost every generation has had something that made them think this could be it. So this could be it. Or we could have some sort of a reprieve. But the challenge is technology is, there's nowhere to hide in the pervasive technology that listens to everything we say every time you do a search, there is an algorithm that biases it. Actually, computer technology is so vast, it knows all about you in a second and can profile you, put you in a category, and it won't give you something shocking because you won't believe something really outside your view. It'll just give you something a little bit that way, and you begin. And here's the subtlety of, of these types of things. You are being manipulated, but it's so effective that you think you are coming up with those ideas. You've searched, and you've done your research, and you think you concluded this opinion when all you did was get manipulated to believe a certain thing. This is how sophisticated this is. Can I say, you can't trust. I mean, the stuff listens to you. You can't trust Media, you can't trust. Now, they tell you, oh, you can't say to people, you can't trust the news, you can't trust this because we'll fall apart. Well, the point is, you can only trust the word of God and test everything with that. And frankly, if parents knew what our kids are being taught in schools, what is happening in very real time to these children, do you, do you think it's just an accident or science that there's a 4,000% increase in gender confusion among elementary school children? 4,000% increase. And little boys saying they think they should be girls and little girls saying they should be boys. And te teachers don't have to tell parents. And I'm telling you, this is the world we live in and, and they want our kids. So we have to make up some, we have to make some tough decisions. And sometimes we're called to make some tough decisions. Like the one king who was told, hey, I know you just hired that godless nation, Israel, to the north. Judah does not need that to beat the Syrians. You better let them go. And the, the king said to the prophet, what am I going to do with the 100,000 talents of silver I gave him? 
And the prophet said, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Honor him. See, I really believe, and I shared this at the marriage thing, if you take care of God's business, he'll take care of yours. You obey him, you follow him, he'll take care of you. So I really believe this, this, is, our, this is our identity in him. This is where we should be, coming short in no gift. That we, why, why do we get gifts? So that we can shine? No, so that we can serve others. And we're looking for his return. So listen, I don't know about you, but I'm planning for a lifetime. But I'm living like the Lord could also come back tomorrow or today. I'm saying, Lord, I, I'm looking up, but I'm also planning for a lifetime. Because only, only the Lord knows when he's going to return. So lies are a fragile thing. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. My encouragement to you is know his truth, you know, seek after wisdom, treasure it like a treasure. Know the only place you can safely get it is in the Bible. Test everything with the scriptures. And as you grow in him, I'm going to tell you something. The wisdom the Lord will give you, you'll be more knowledgeable than the ancients, more knowledgeable than your teachers. You'll have insights that you wouldn't even imagine and you'll have conversations and divine opportunities all around you. And you know what? Maybe your lot is to just influence that one soul in college that believes in the Lord, goes on to be a pastor, starts a church, has a radio station, an outreach and ministry. And because you are faithful to show that kindness to one person, you have made a huge difference in the kingdom. Oh, Lord, what can, Lord, we pray what you desire to do with your people. Lord, I'm so blessed to know Raz and Izel and especially Zach and Amanda to see their hearts, to want to equip and build up your saints here. And Father, I pray that, Lord, they deepen themselves in you, let lesser things go, put away the trinkets of this world and be involved in this great glorious calling and mission that you've given to them to make a difference here in Miami. I pray for any here that perhaps they haven't yet called on the name of your son, Jesus. Lord, maybe they came with a friend or a family member. I pray that they'd settle that business with you before they go and believe on your name, that only through your sacrifice on the cross can they have life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.